got a friend from South Africa with us today, uh, Neil Anderson. Used to always call him Kilwa. I got an email that said Neil Anderson. I didn't know who Neil Anderson was. I was so used to him being called by a South African name of Kilwa. And uh, he pastors in South Africa. And uh, I was at this retreat. I thought, you know, uh, the church seems to be doing pretty good with me not preaching. So what do I need to preach for? I'll be an MC. And so uh, he's over here came to a pastor's conference that's going to be held at Community starting next week. And uh, said, well, just come and preach for us. And uh, uh, as a graduate of Master's Seminary, and uh, I think I met him through Steve Fernandez and that relationship. And uh, has a wife, two children, pastors, has done church planning in South Africa. And he'll tell you more about his story and his journey. So please welcome Neil Anderson from South Africa. Morning. Well, it's great to be with you uh, here in California, uh, the land of the giants. Uh, Pastor Phil just asked me to share um, just a bit about myself uh, before we look at the Word of God. And uh, so I'll tell you a bit of, of my life story. I am from Africa, I'm a white African. I was born and raised in South Africa. And I'm a sixth generation, so I can't get any other passport. And uh, the Lord was very gracious to call me to himself at the age of 10. Uh, my parents got saved, and they shared the gospel with me, and I got saved. And then the Lord started working in various ways. Uh, one thing he did was provide an opportunity. The first time I got to preach was to our entire high school when I was 12 years old. And uh, we uh, preached there, went on some short-term mission trips in high school, and after school spent a year going all around Southern Africa, doing missionary work, and uh, just taking the gospel to remote rural areas, and really felt called of the Lord into uh, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, God provided the, the way to get some Bible training in California here. So I lived here for a number of years and then returned to my home country to serve Christ there uh, in, a, in a church plant situation and uh, was there for four and a half years where I met my wife, uh, Nicole, where God had uh, miraculously saved her out of a lot of crazy stuff, and uh, we got uh, married, uh, we got two children now, we got a one-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old. and uh, so they keep us busy, and we thank the Lord for them, but anyways, we've ended up now in a city called Port Elizabeth, which is on the coast in South Africa, it's uh, in the area where Nelson Mandela is from, that's a name you should know, and uh, his hometown is not too far away from where we live. And we helping a little church there, a pastoring little church there called Grace Bible Church in that city. Uh, there's about 25, 30 folk that meet on a Sunday. And uh, we helping to just establish that church, uh, preaching Christ, doing discipleship, trying to raise up leaders, um, you know. And uh, the Lord's doing a work there. Uh, a lot of the people in the church come out of the Dutch Reformed Church. I don't know if you know anything about South Africa, but... Uh, the early history of our country, the Dutch Reformed Church came to South Africa and basically planted churches in every town. There's a, every town you go to, there will be a Dutch Reformed Church there with a big steeple. And uh, they were very much involved in uh, legitimizing apartheid in the country. The Afrikaans people that attend these Dutch Reformed churches were in power at that stage, and you all know about apartheid. And they got a lot of that from the Bible, obviously misinterpretation of the Bible, but essentially they viewed themselves as a special race that was called of God to the land of South Africa. They kind of viewed that as Israel. 
and um, there was a war that happened uh, between the Afrikaners and the Zulu nation. You've heard of Shark Zulu, um, a very historic war called the Battle of Blood River. And what they did is they made a covenant with God before they fought the war, saying, God, if you help us win, then we covenant to be your people. And so out of that whole thinking, they justified the apartheid system, and it was the, uh, the Dutch Reformed Church that essentially put its stamp of approval on that. So anyways, the Dutch Reformed Church is pretty much a works-based kind of church. You know, you guys have a lot of Catholicism here in the Bay Area. It's kind of similar to that. You know, I born and I go to the Dutch Reformed Church, therefore I'm a Christian, that kind of thing. So a lot of the people come out of that background and they're hearing the gospel of Christ, uh, freedom in Christ. We save through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, all the baptisms we've done in the church have been people that were baptized as babies, but then have come to realize that now having been saved, they should get baptized and profess Christ. So, so we're doing that, you know, and we're just praying that the Lord would help us to have an impact in the city. There are... Um, there's so many needs, uh, but we are trying to uh, help train people, do biblical counseling. Uh, we're getting a whole bunch of people calling us from different churches around the city, needing counseling from the Word of God, and we're doing that. And uh, we also have a real heart to help train African pastors. There's a lot of pastors who live in the, the, the outskirts of the city, in township areas, and they just don't have any means, you know, no, no place to go to get training or any finances to get trained. And so our heart is to really tell, try help take some of the, the blessings the Lord's given us to train them. So if you remember us, pray for us. Uh, we're kind of doing what you guys are doing. <laughs> just on the, it's just a smaller work, you know, in a different place. But uh, anyways, it's great to be here with you this morning. And I just want to share with you from the Word of God. If you have a, your Bible, please turn to Luke 17. We're going to look at the words of Christ. There's a church you can go to in South Africa, in the Eastern Cape, which is where Nelson Mandela is from, near, not too far from where our city is, PE. And it's a tiny little town called Adelaide, and in that town is, this, is a Dutch Reformed church. And you can go see this church today. Um, this town was established in the mid-1800s, and uh, in the years 1899 to 1902, there was this war that I mentioned earlier between uh, the British, oh no, no, I mentioned the Zulu War, eh? this was a different war, this was a war between the British and the Afrikaners, so the Afrikaners were living there and wanted, wanted to claim South Africa for their own, and then you had the British come and at that stage of the game, they were kind of claiming the world as their own, and so they said, no, it's ours, so they, they fought each other. And uh, what they did is the British came into this town, and they just took over the, the church building. And so they put all the soldiers in there, they had barracks in there, they took over the pastor's house, they kicked him out, they turned that into stables, and they basically completely trashed the building. But when the war was over, they just left. And uh, the poor townspeople, you know, they were pretty upset. You know, they, their place of worship was completely destroyed. They were very simple farmers. They didn't have the money to buy the materials to fix up the church. They tried to raise money, but they were unsuccessful. And anyways, uh, a few months after their attempt to raise money, these two large wagons came rolling into town full of fine-cut timber. And there was a very fancy pulpit you know, that had a very fancy design on it, uh, very professionally done with a matching chair. And then these people thought, wow, you know, the British, they obviously felt bad and uh, grew a conscience. And now they, this is their way of saying sorry to us. So they immediately got to work and they used all the timber to restore their church. And they started holding Sunday services again in the church building. Well, it was three months after this that the mayor of Adelaide, South Africa, got a letter from the mayor of Adelaide, Australia. And this is what the letter said. Dear sir, it is with some trepidation 
that we inquire as to whether a consignment of oak wood, which we ordered from England about two years ago for our new church, has not perhaps by mistake been delivered to your town in South Africa instead of ours. Well, there was nothing they could do. <laughs> so they took some pictures of the church and sent it to the mayor and explained to him what the British had done and how they thought it was from the British. And they just kind of thanked this church for the wood that they were using. But the point is, they took their worship seriously. They wanted a nice place to worship the Lord. And so they built a nice church. And that's a good thing. Because we need to prioritize worship of Jesus Christ. In uh, Port Elizabeth, our church, we meet in a medical center. So where we actually meet as a whole church is actually a large doctor's room. And uh, we kind of crammed 30 people in there. We pretty much maxed out the space. So we're trying to find a, a better venue to meet in. We've actually been looking for two years. And um, we want a place where we, can, where we can have Sunday school, where we can have maybe a cry room, a creche, all those things that will facilitate the worship of God. And that's a good thing. But what we need to remind ourselves of is what worship is all about and that it is something that flows from a believing heart in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at the words of Luke 17 this morning. Just have a look there at verse 11. Because here we see a story that is recorded for us. Obviously, the Holy Spirit, writing through Luke, tells us about something that happened in the life of Christ. We read in verse 11 that Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. Look at what it says. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, there's some geography for you, but it's very significant and adds a lot of meaning to the story, as you will see later. Uh, the first thing we notice is where he's going. He's going towards the great city in Israel, Jerusalem. Now, what's significant about that, as we all know, this is the place where Christ will die. His whole mission is to pay for the sins of mankind upon the cross. And that redemption price is paid in the city of Jerusalem. So there's a whole salvation um, context here uh, in this, and we see that that's where Christ is going, and that's what he's going to go do. But then we see at the end of the verse that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, Samaria is where the Samaritans lived, and they were a mixed race of people. Galilee is very much a Jewish territory, and the Jews and Samaritans pretty much hated each other and didn't have anything to do with each other. So it's interesting. This this part where Jesus is at is the border between those two places. And Jesus is going on his journey. Now, the next thing we see in verses 12 to 14 is that he encounters 10 lepers. And what happens here is nothing short. It, it is a miracle. It, in fact, it is a mass miracle where Jesus will heal these guys. Look at what it says. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. So here's Jesus going into this town. Now, no doubt he had his apostles with him, the disciples following along with him. Some random town in this border territory. And there are these 10 guys who are lepers. They're outside of the town. Now, leprosy was a disease back then that had a lot of stigma to it. You could, uh, it was very contagious. 
So lepers had to, by law, uh, keep a distance from people. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus required that lepers sort of be isolated from the rest of the people. And so these guys, they weren't allowed inside the town. They had to be outside on the outskirts. And obviously they grouped together trying to survive together because they couldn't go and just spend time with their families and get the kind of help like that. So these 10 guys are together. Now, no doubt they had heard about the miraculous power of Jesus Christ because what they asked for is for Jesus Christ to have mercy on them. That's what they say, have mercy on us. And what they mean by that is have mercy upon our condition. In other words, heal us of the sickness of leprosy. Now, it's clear that they didn't believe necessarily that Jesus was God because they don't ascribe to him any title of deity. Look at what it says, verse 13. They call him Jesus, and then they give him the title Master. Now, that's not the usual word for Lord that we have in the New Testament. They're not calling him Lord. They don't view him as Lord, but they, they do view him as someone who has access to God's power and can heal them. And so that's simply what they're asking for. Now, they do this from a distance. Now, verse, verse 14 is beautiful. Look at what it says. And, and sorry, um, yeah, verse 14. And he saw them. You see, Jesus, when he heard their cry, he didn't just ignore it. And we know that Christ was a busy man. We know that he had a lot of stuff to do. He had a full schedule, no doubt. And he had a mission. He was going towards Jerusalem. But he pauses. And he looks over at these ten men. And he feels for their condition. And it's just wonderful just to see the compassion of our God, isn't it? You know, he's fully aware, friend, of anything you might be going through in your life today, any trial you're experiencing, any difficulty. And Jesus looked at these guys, and he was moved to do something about it. Look at what he says. Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, you may be wondering, what is he talking about? Well, according to the law in Leviticus, you can go read about it. If a leper, uh, his leprosy went away, if he got healed or somehow he got better, he was required to go to the priest, one of the priests of Israel. And what they would do is they went through an eight-day process where they would then publicly and officially declare that person to be cleansed. And only after that time could they then be reintroduced back into society. They could go have a barbecue with their family and everything be put back to normal. So what is in essence Jesus saying to these guys is, go now to the priest so that he can then do this duty to you and you can be declared clean and healed. But now what's amazing is that they weren't healed when he tells them this. So what Jesus, in essence, is testing is their faith. Do you have faith that I indeed can heal you? Do you really believe that? You see, because what these guys would have to do, you just kind of picture it. You standing there, you heard Jesus coming to town. You cry out for him to heal you. Then he tells you, okay, now go to the priest. And you look down and you still got your leprosy. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, what do we do? Now, do we obey him or do we, or do we just say, oh, well, it didn't work? What's interesting is these 10 guys believed that they would get healed because they start heading towards the priests. We read at the end of the verse, it says, as they were going, as they were going. So they started going. And what happens is while they're going, then Jesus heals them. Now, can you imagine that for a moment? Just try picture it in your mind. Okay, you one of the lepers. So your hands all shriveled up, your skin's all peeling off you. Maybe you're missing half your nose. And you're so excited that you're going to get healed. You, I mean, I'm sure these guys were running. I doubt that they were walking. Maybe they were limping along. I don't know. But they were very excited. They were going in faith. And as you're running along, you look over to your buddy next to you and you notice he has hair. 
he didn't, he didn't used to have an ear, now he's got an ear. And he looks over at you and he's like, wow, you've got a nose, man. <laughs> and you suddenly realize you've been healed. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, no doubt these guys were saying, hey, look at you. And they were all excited by the fact that they were healed now. That's exactly what happened. As they were going along, they were healed. And friends, this is an amazing miracle because it's not just one person. This is a mass miracle. There were 10 of them were healed. And they were healed Jesus style. Jesus style is instantaneous and complete. Not partial like, hey, I'm feeling a little bit better. Or progressive like this week I'm a little bit strong and next week I'm better and in three months time I'm better. Friends, Jesus' style is you can't see, now you can see. You're a leper, now you're not a leper. And, and ten of them immediately, instantaneously at the same time and he, he wasn't even near them. It's amazing just to think about that. Well, there's a, another miracle that happens in the story. And uh, quite frankly, it's a, it's a far greater miracle. And that's what we read about in verses 15 to 19. One of these guys gets saved. And what we read in these verses is Jesus' affirmation of this man's salvation. Just, just, just look at it, verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Well, friends, I believe that this is talking about a man who experienced a spiritual miracle. Yes, he had just experienced a physical miracle, but here is the response of a man to the fact that he has been saved by God, Jesus Christ. It's really incredible. Out of these 10 guys, only one of them turns back. Okay, so clearly he realized he was healed, but his response is different. And the question you have to ask yourself this morning is, what? was in his heart that made him turn back. You see, there's something different about his heart and the heart of the other nine. Now, I pray that there isn't a heart here this morning who's like the nine. I pray that your heart, friend, is like this one. There is a huge lesson here that God wants us to see. Why is this recorded for us in the pages of Scripture? Why does this happen here? Why is it happening? What this is, friends, is a lesson that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples and his followers. You can go read the context before. There was a massive uh, struggle going on between the Pharisees and Christ. And Christ had been rebuking the Pharisees for their sin. One of their sins, very interesting, it's uh, mentioned in chapter 16, verse 14, was the love of money. They perverted the Old Testament law to justify breaking the 10th commandment, which is thou shalt not covet. They were covetous. And so they twisted the scripture. And Christ was rebuking them, and he said, your hearts are totally in the wrong place. And it became 
a very serious thing, friends, because he then went on to tell the story of Lazarus and the rich man at the end of chapter 16, which is all about hell, basically saying, and by the way, that story was told to the Pharisees, and so what he was saying to them is, this is where you are going to go, like the rich man. It's absolutely a matter of eternity, friends. Where are you going to spend eternity? And what he does in chapter 17 is he transitions to talk to the disciples. And he gives them some very difficult commands in the beginning there. And he teaches the apostles about faith. Saving faith is active. Tells them to be humble. Giving them a a bunch of lessons. And then here you have the story. How Jesus is always taking real life situations as opportunities to share and teach his disciples spiritual truth. That's exactly what he's doing here. In the life of this man, the Samaritan man, there is a great lesson for the disciples to learn. A lesson they must never, ever forget, friends, and never lose sight of. You and I must never, ever lose sight of the lesson that Christ has for us this morning. What exactly is that lesson? We'll just look at what this man does. We read there in verse 15, he turned back, and then there's three things he does. We told there that he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. You know what he wanted to do in response to Christ was praise him. That's what this is talking about. And he wanted to sing out to to Jesus. And he cried out with a loud voice. He didn't just cry out. He cried out with a loud voice. You see, something had happened to him. What about the other nine? Were they happy? Yes. But they didn't come back and glorify God. And you know what is amazing here, if you look at this, is the God who he glorifies is not the Father. It is Jesus Christ in the flesh. Because look at the next phrase in verse 16. He fell on his face at his feet, his feet. That's Jesus' feet. Now, when you fall on your face, friends, that is a posture of worship. And so something had happened in his heart. He had been saved, and he had come to Christ in a posture of worship. In other words, he didn't look at this man anymore as the master who has the power to heal me. He now looked at him as Lord. This is Jehovah himself. You know what? The name Jesus means, it's a beautiful meaning. It means Jehovah is salvation. You know, a lot of Jews called their children Jesus during this time because they were hoping in the salvation of God as was prophesied in the Old Testament in many scriptures. And, I mean, you would never use that name Jesus again the same way, would he? (laughs) Because essentially what he's doing by glorifying God is he's ascribing to Jesus. He's saying to Jesus, I know who you are. You are Jehovah. And you're not only my healer physically, but you are also my healer spiritually. This is amazing. His heart has changed. There's no question about it. And then you see there in verse 16 again, the third thing is he's, he's giving thanks to him. Obviously, he's thanking Jesus for healing him of his leprosy, but also healing him from his sin. You say, well, how do you know that? It becomes very clear later on. But friends, what you see uh, is the response of saving faith. 
And then Luke gives us a little bit of information there. You know, the kind of thing you could just read over very quickly and not take much notice of it. But it is very significant, the end of verse 16, and he was a Samaritan. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, you've got to remember where he's at. He's in this border between Samaria and Galilee. Galilee being the place of the Jews, Samaria being the place of the Samaritans. So now we understand that the lepers were mixed. There were Jews among them, and there was a Samaritan guy. But what's interesting is the Jews who grew up with the Word of God, who grew up with the Old Testament, who grew up with the the prophet Isaiah being preached to them in the synagogues on the Sabbath day, never saw who Jesus was. It was the foreigner. It was the outcast who did. It's just so amazing. And Jesus is fully aware of this. And what he does is he capitalizes on this opportunity and he turns to his disciples and in Jesus' style, he asked them a bunch of questions. And he's stirring their heart, friends. He wants them to think about what he's asking. Look at what he asked them in verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? Now, who's he speaking to? He's not speaking to, he's obviously speaking to those who are around him. We know that his apostles and disciples traveled with him all the time. So he must be referring to them. And he's saying to them, answer these questions. Were there not ten cleansed? The answer is yes, of course there were. There were ten cleansed. But the nine, where are they, he says. Where are they? Now they, if you think about it, are actually obeying Jesus. What did Jesus command them to do? Show yourselves to the priests. (laughs) So they are obeying Jesus. But, and I think this just adds significance to what happens to you when you get saved is you cannot just carry on with life without responding to the one who has saved you, right? And so he's trying to get them to think about it. Even They may be thinking, but Jesus, you told them to go to the priests. And Jesus is saying to them, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? And in verse 18, he gets right to the heart of what he wants them to think about was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner. So what he's saying is only one of them returned. But look at what he returned to do. Not to just thank Jesus for healing them, but to give glory. But it's glory to who, friends? It's glory to God. Jesus is saying, I am God. And he recognized who I am. Now he's been, I mean, Christ is so patient. Talking to the Pharisees over and over and over again, telling them who he is, who he is, who he is, explaining to them. And their hard-heartedness, they just refused to believe him and refused to put their faith in him, right? And here's this man, he does. And he calls him a foreigner. And that tells us a lot about the grace of God. Tells us a lot about evangelism. It tells us a lot about the heart of God. God wants to save all kinds of people, right? And so the disciples are listening to this, maybe processing it, thinking about it. And then Jesus says the most astounding thing, not to them anymore, but he turns to the man, the Christ worshiper, the Samaritan, and he speaks to him in verse 19. But what he says to him is for the ears of the disciples. This is the great lesson. The great lesson is he says, stand up and go. Okay, you've been worshiping me now. That was good. That was the right thing to do, but now... Now you can move on. And then here is this key statement. Your faith has made you well. Now it's easy for us to miss this. 
That's not a great translation. I'm using the New American Standard here. You, you can, this is uh, the word that most of the time in the New Testament is translated saved. Saved from sin. Saved to eternal life. And so you, you could easily translate it this way. Your faith has saved you. That's what Jesus is saying. And he, what he's saying is, you were converted, my friend, just a few moments ago. And at that point in time, when you were saved, you began to be saved. And you continue to be saved up until now. And you will stand up and you will go forth from here and you will continue to be saved. That's what he's saying to him. He's affirming to him, he's giving him the assurance that he has been saved by the power of God. That he is born again. That he is a child of God. That's just amazing. And how did it happen? It happened through his faith, right? The instrument of salvation was faith. Now, just think about this for a moment. Did the other nine not have faith? The answer is they did have faith. That we see their faith in verse 14 when Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priest. They didn't say, you know what? This guy's a phony. This guy's a joke. I thought I was going to get saved. I mean, I thought I was going to get healed. He hasn't healed me. Let's go on our way. They didn't do that. They responded in faith and they started heading there. But friends, it wasn't a saving faith. That's what you've got to understand. Only one of them, they all had a selfish faith. Let's put it that way. What did they want out of Jesus? Physical healing. And he gave it to all ten of them. But only one of them wasn't content just with the physical healing. Do you understand? But the other nine were. You see, a lot of people today will have this kind of faith in Christ. You know, Christ, I got cancer. I'm, I'm going to call out to you now. I'll start going to church. You know, times are tough, Lord. Help me out financially. Bless me. Or wh whatever it is. That's all. They're just thinking in terms of what they can get out of Christ. And that's the nine. It's very common, this kind of faith, friends. There's many, many people in the world today with this kind of faith. And what Jesus wants his disciples to see is there is a saving faith. That's different. Saving faith doesn't look to Christ for just what it can get from him. It looks to him and it clings to him, the person of Christ. Isn't that, that's so fundamental. In other words, like, like, look at this guy. You know, he comes glorifying God. He comes shouting with a loud voice glorifying God, praising God with a loud voice. You can't hold him back. Now, now, what do you think he would have said to one of those nine that said, listen, man, what are you doing going back there? Let's go to the priest. He would have just said, he would have said, get out of my way, you know. Because... His faith wasn't about what he got out of Jesus. His faith was about Jesus. And that's saving faith. Saving faith clings to the healer. It's all about the healer. It's all about Christ. It's like, Christ, give me leprosy if you want. Christ, you know, if, it's, if it so happens that I go through this divorce, then let it happen, Lord. If it so happens my child dies, whatever it is, but I will never, ever let go of you, Lord. And he's holding on to Jesus Christ. He's clinging to him. And it's like, can you imagine? He was probably holding on to Jesus. I can imagine that very easily. Where Christ is saying, okay, man, now you can let go and you can stand up. And that's how we should be. Can you imagine a Sunday going by in your life and not going to meet with the people of God, to sing to Him, and to give to Him, and to praise Him. Can you even imagine such a thing happening? 
That's how you should be, friends. You know, A.W. Tozer, I just found this out the other day. He was a famous pastor in Chicago, and they had cars back then. And he and his wife chose to never own a vehicle. I don't know why, but he just used public transport if he needed to get somewhere. Maybe the cost of owning a vehicle, he wanted to give that to the Lord. I don't know. Maybe that's what motivated him. When I read stuff like that about people, it makes me think, what was in his heart that would make him decide that, to, to choose that? It wasn't out of poverty that he did that. Now listen to the words that he said, and this might help us understand a little bit. I mean it when I say that I would rather worship God than do anything else. There is nothing else in this world he would rather do than worship God. And as I look at this man here, I think that's exactly where he's at. There's nothing else he'd rather be doing at this moment than worshiping God and glorifying God. Do you guys have golf courses here in the Bay Area? Of course you do, right? Sometimes as a pastor, I feel like I need to take one of those golf clubs and go hunt down those people that are on those golf courses on a Sunday and just use that club. But you know what keeps me from doing that, friends? Is that I'll be robbed of worshiping my Savior. If they want to go worship their golf, then worship your golf. But what a privilege, friend, to worship Jesus Christ. There is no greater privilege in this world than to worship Him. You know, in the, I was, I've been so ministered to this morning, I can't tell you. I mean, I don't expect anyone here to relate to where I'm at right now. Maybe some of you can, I don't know. I've been giving quite a lot for quite a few years. and came here this morning, and there were people that just said hi, you know. It was totally normal to you guys. But I haven't experienced that for so long. And to see people worshiping and singing out like this, to you it may not be a big deal because you're used to it. But I haven't experienced it for so long, man. And it has encouraged my heart so much. And we're there, friends, and we just survey Jesus, you know what I mean? And we got opposition against us. We're just coming out of a time of intense spiritual warfare. I was sick for two months. I didn't even know if I would make this trip. And that happened, this has happened to me every single time I've ever preached on hell. I've been attacked spiritually. And that the, the Monday after I preached, I got sick. And I was sick for two months. I didn't know if I was going to come here. And we just had a tremendous, we've been looking for a, a place to meet for two years, friends, and, uh, you know, my wife and I have been driving around the city, and we've heard this great opportunity, and the, the day that I flew out here, that morning, I flew out in the afternoon, that morning I went off to meet the pastor of this church, they were going to rent out their facility, and all this stuff was going on just a few days ago, and this morning my wife called me to tell me that the whole thing had fallen through, and and be, and basically, you know, obviously, God's sovereign and you're trusting in Him. But we know that that has happened through another pastor essentially sabotaging that opportunity. I have no idea how 20, 30 people can intimidate anyone else, but it doesn't matter. This is about Jesus Christ 
And uh, we will serve Jesus if we're meeting under a tree, right? So you know you might have an earthquake this afternoon and not have a church to meet in next, uh, next Sunday. That can happen. We serve a mighty God, friends. And, you know, our times to come and worship Him, that's so precious. We must just really, really value that. Make that the highest priority. May it be that the thought of missing a worship service, you know, unless you're sick or you just, it's impossible, just be so far from your mind. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're not a worshiper of Christ. You know you're not a worshiper of Christ. Maybe you can resonate with those nine guys a little bit more than you can with this one. Friend, let today be the day that you get saved. You can come to Christ and cling to Him and call out to Him for salvation, and He will receive you. Just do that today, friend. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so thankful. You, your grace is just absolutely incredible, Lord. I mean, all of us here, we've got a story of how you've intervened. And when we think about it, we know it wasn't us just choosing you, Lord. It was you calling us. It had to be. And the Spirit of God moving us, and you just being so kind to us, Lord. We are so thankful to you. Um, and, and we get to praise you. We get to worship you, Lord. It is so wonderful. We thank you so much. We're just reminded this morning of David Livingston, a man who had a heart to bring the gospel to Africa. And every Sunday, wherever he was, no matter how remote it was, no matter how many Christians were with him or not, he would have a worship service. What a great testimony. Lord, help us be a people that when we go on vacation, we find a church and we worship you. Let us be a people that shows our family that the highest priority is worship. Yes, we love them. We'll come see them. But don't ask us to miss a worship service. And may you use that to show them that Jesus is more important to us than anything in this world. Father God, we thank you so much for your kindness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church planting is a very lonely job. He gets there and starts. He planted another church, spent four years or so there. Uh, now he's here four years, up to 25 people. It's kind of like a Ron Johnson. Uh, uh, Sean, last week, covered for Ron. Ron just uh, is having a gallstone surgery, had a crisis. But uh, last week, uh, Sean covered the pulpit for him. Uh, he's been there three years. Uh, he preached to 20 people. And uh, I've got a pastor friend up in the uh, east side of Oregon. He goes to out-of-the-way pastors. They don't have a piano player. They don't have a song leader. They, don't have, they may have 18 people, 19. Can you be at church with 19 people? Yeah, you can. But you don't have all the buzz, all the programs, all the benefits, all this, all that. We just grow. Well, you know, I got to have a nursery. You're spoiled. You're blessed. And we provide it because we want young mothers to be able to attend the service. It's great. But we don't want to be some fat cat. I don't know what it's about. Most of you have never gone to a real, real small church barely making it in your life. And we need to be thankful. I want to take a love art. I'll just leave it here, a Bible open. I don't know how he paid his airfare to get over here, probably community. Uh, but do you th they probably pay him a huge salary with 25 people. 
Well, I don't know what they pay him. But uh, if you would like to help this dear brother uh, to keep preaching, keep growing, keep standing. Um, I want to pray for him. We'll be dismissed. Just put it on the Bible. We'll see to it that he gets it. By the way, we never invite a speaker here, but well, we don't already plan to pay him, cut him a check. But every once in a while we have a speaker, I think, I want to let you people have an opportunity to do over and above. And that's up to you. Father, we too have been healed. And uh, some it's been physical healing. That's okay. But you can go to hell with a well body. You can go to hell and uh, be chiseled and be buffed and be the best in shape guy in town. But I'm still going to hell. But, oh, Lord, I cast myself at your feet, for you saved me. You did a lot more. You didn't choose to heal my hip and my back as a boy and all those problems. But I tell you, Lord, you did save me, and I want to shout it. I want to make it known. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is King. He's more than a healer. He's a Savior. He's a Savior. He gave me eternal life. Eternal life. I've met him. He's not just a nice teacher. He's not just a nice rabbi. He is Lord. He is God. We adore you. And Father, I want to thank you for the joy of meeting with your people to adore you. I don't know how thin the crowd will get as apostasy, false teaching, and lukewarmness seems to sweep over the Western church. And so many people just have a dab of God, and they don't want to get too carried away. They they just don't want him all the time because he, he's nice for an hour a week. Lord, we can't get enough of you. We can't get enough of you. I've tasted and it keeps me thirsty. I want more. I want more. I don't want less. I'm tired of being entertained to death with stupidity. I want to be a worshiper of the living God while I have breath in this world. Let us worship the true and living God. And let us quit whining about how hard it is to serve a God that rescued us, saved us, carried us. You aren't hard to serve, Lord. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And I hear you tell Israel, you've got to carry Bell. You've got to carry Dagon. You build carts and you get oxen and you lift heavy. You nearly get a hernia lifting your idols up and putting them on an ox cart. Hear me, O Israel. You've never carried me. I've been carrying you. I carry my people. I don't ask them to carry me. Oh, great, great, everlasting arm, God, the God on whose wings we are resting as you fly us right into glory. And the church that's seemingly getting halfway happy said at least, Amen. You're dismissed.